Thank you for checking out the Faith City Church Podcast. We believe that you'll be blessed by today's message. Give a warm welcome to Bishop Jamie Englehart. Good evening, everybody. That's good to see many of you back and to see some new faces also, which is always fun. And uh, my voice is just a little tired. I've been in the studio all day doing the Audible book for this. And so uh, I was at my, at my son's in his studio. And so I told him, let's uh, finish up when I get back home because him and I uh, always stay up half the night as it is anyway. I said, I'll stop by on the way back. He said, no, your voice is going to be too trashed. He said, they actually tell you to, to only do actually four hours at a time. And that's it. And so uh, I'm, I'm able to get 20 of these in in two and a half hours. And so uh, I won't keep you that long tonight, I promise. But uh, uh, we had a great time last week. And uh, I really want to encourage you guys. I do have all these with me um, right directly afterwards uh, back at the table. Uh, I will have uh, the books uh, ready to sign them. And uh, we're getting ready. Once the Audible book comes out, we're going to be able to, uh, I've got a, kind of a whole marketing group that are like Facebook marketing gurus, which I guess there's a whole thing that goes along with that. I, I didn't realize, of course, it costs money, <clears throat> and that's just a normal thing. Uh, but uh, once we get the Audible book done, there's going to be a whole blast and kind of get this out more. I've been doing a bunch of blogs uh, with different people as well as vlogs and different stuff. So it's just kind of kind of fun. My first go around, and so excited about it, working on my second and third one right now. Uh, working on uh, working on the the power of the gospel, and uh, I think I preached it to you the last time I was here. The seven things in the New Testament actually called the gospel. Uh, that uh, there's not one thing that we can limit the gospel to. It's the gospel of God, the gospel of the dear Son, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of Paul, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace. They're all the gospel. That's why, depending on what camp you go in, they'll tell you what gospel they preach. And rarely do anybody preach the full gospel. Uh, normally they preach four or five of the seven and then leave the rest of them out and then normally end up fighting with each other about those on top of it. And so uh, it's just really understanding the power of the gospel because Paul said, I want to come to you to preach the gospel to you. And he was speaking to believers. Why would he need to preach the gospel to people who've already heard the gospel? It's because maybe the gospel is bigger than just you get to go to heaven when you die. I mean, maybe it's actually more about this life than it is the afterlife. And so the gospel is, is the good news. That's the power of God unto sozo, unto healing, deliverance, protection, wholeness, completeness. I think if the word salvation would have been interpreted wholeness, I think we'd view this thing totally different. I think part of the problem is, is we view the word saved and we automatically think out of one place into something else. And many times it's preserved, it's healed. There's all kinds of other meanings for it. And so uh, busy working on all that right now. Anyway, let me get right into this. And uh, as we did last week, uh, I'm just kind of skipping around on these. Uh, and just pulling out different ones. Uh, all of these will really, I believe, minister to your heart and speak some things to you. Uh, and then after each one, uh, the mic is open if you have a question. And as many of you know, there won't be a Q&A. There will be Q&R, a question and a response, because I may not have the answer to what you ask. I have, uh, there's sometimes I get stumped. Uh, there's some stuff I don't know, and I haven't studied it. And I'm not one of those preachers that's going to stand up here and talk out of my backside acting like I know something I don't. That's a really good place for an amen. Okay, listen, if, if I don't know, I have no problem saying I don't know. You know, I never thought of it before. That's a really good question. And so I want to start with myth number 13 tonight. 
And myth number 13 is God and evil cannot be in the same place. Uh, Let me read a portion of this. A good portion of us have heard the above statement at one time or another. Just like myth number three, God cannot look on sin, which is not true. The above idea comes from the understanding that God is light and there's no darkness in him, which is true, but it can be and is around him. In the book of Job, Satan is standing in the throne room with the sons of God talking to God, and uh, literally God has a discussion with him. So evil himself was in God's presence in his own house. David in Psalm 23 says, uh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. That means uh, God and evil were in the same vicinity. Uh, right there in the presence of evil is God with us. Romans 7.21, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. So Paul's telling us that evil is present at the same time as good along with God's love and presence. David also uh, makes a statement. I won't read the whole thing, but David makes a statement. He said, where can I go from your presence, O God? If I go to the highest heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or make my bed in the grave, mistranslated, it never should have been hell. But just if I make my bed in hell, you are even there. And so uh, I'll get to that myth uh, probably next week, uh, that, that hell is void of God's presence. Because if it is, David was lying. Anyway, hallelujah. Just, uh, we, we think hell is a place that you go to get, a, to get away from God. You can't get away from God. Uh, listen, he's, he fills all in all. He, uh, he sustains everything by the word of his power. There is no place God is not. And if he is not someplace, that place is a God to itself because God upholds and sustains everything. He's above all, through all, and in all. There's no place that God is not. And thank God that in him we all live and move and have our being, for we are all God's offspring. That, that means whether you believe it or not, you're all in Christ. Uh, but it doesn't mean you've had a revelation of Christ in you. And what we really call, what we call salvation is when someone has a revelation of Christ in them. That's why Paul on the Damascus Road said this. He said, on the Damascus Road, Christ was revealed in me. He didn't say Christ was revealed to me. He said Christ was revealed in me. Why? Because he was already there. He just had to have an experience and awaken to the reality of, of what was already there. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, that, uh, but this idea that God and evil, I remember I had a preacher one time on Facebook, and I got a few Facebook sheriffs that, hallelujah, a few of you in here do too, uh, that just, you know, they love to jump on. Anytime you say God is love, yeah, but. You know, God is good. Yeah, but. I mean, there's all, yeah, buddy. I mean, it's coming. You just know it's coming. I had one guy want to argue with me, and he said, God and evil cannot be in the same place. I'm like, well, that's ludicrous. I mean, because that, that, that means there's someplace God's not because evil is everywhere. It's, it's all around us because that comes with the old adage that a Christian, that once they accept Jesus, they, they, there cannot be any kind of demonic influence around their life. Let me tell you something. Deliverance is specifically more for Christians than non-Christians. Now that, that's why scripture says that deliverance is the children's bread. And the reason why is because Jesus said, if you cast out a demon and there's not, then God now or something to fill it up, that demon comes back with seven big brothers and actually makes you even worse. And so preaching the gospel to someone that doesn't even want to receive Jesus, casting the devil out of someone that doesn't want Jesus, you actually leave them worse off than they were before. So we get this idea. I remember my, my mother in the faith, Dr. Fuchsia Pickett, she used to say, people would say, can a Christian have a demon? She said, a Christian can have whatever they want. 
You know, I mean, it's, it's actually ridiculous to think because it's like, oh, but God and evil can't be in the same place. Well, of course it can. That, that, it's a soul issue. It's not a spirit issue. My, my spirit is completely redeemed, completely brand new. The devil can't have anything to do with my spirit, my he. Some of y'all heard me talk about that before. But he can mess with my she, which is my woman. It's an issue of your soul. That is why it's an issue of dealing with the mind, the will, and the emotions, not your spirit, man. You cannot be possessed, but you can be oppressed. Uh, you, you, you can have some mess in your mind and your emotions and come on, you with me? So, but, but see, we've pretty much been taught that once you accept Jesus, God and the devil can't be anywhere near each other. Who says, I mean, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous because God and evil obviously can be, uh, in the same place at the same time. Obviously evil has to bow. Bows to the name of Jesus always. Plus, all you, all you, all you got to do is just go to the mall. And anyway, just God and evil. When you walked in, God walked in with you. And guess what? God and evil's in the same place. Okay, because you, you're just walking. Just go to Walmart. Anyway, hello. Just uh, get around to some of the craziest folks on the planet. Just you ever watch them videos? Just go there. Get God and crazy in the same place. So I mean, that just that just happens. So. That's it of that. Anybody, anybody got a, a question about that? Y'all did pretty good last time. I think I, I did a good job of explaining some of these who didn't necessarily have to. All right, let me get to the next one here. Uh, uh, number 16. This is a fun one. Saying, oh, my God, is taking the name of the Lord in vain. Now, I'm not going to read this one. I'm just going to talk about it. Listen, guys, when I was growing up, I got my mouth washed out with soap for saying gosh. Because gosh is slang for God. It was the group I grew up in, it wasn't God, it was God. There was, there was, there's, there's a W in that right there. <laughs> and I, I remember another time I got my mouth washed. I, I remember thinking, I looked back, I said to my parents not too long, I said to my mother, what made you think? that sticking a bar of soap in my mouth was going to clean it. <laughs> it's the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Man, washing someone's mouth. I mean, that was just ridiculous stuff. But I remember I said, geez. Oh, gee, geez was slang for Jesus. And so then if you, if you went so far, and oh my God, blasphemous. You are Blasphemous. And I remember it, what always bothered me about it is how could saying a name be taking it? He never said, you know, one of those big ten, it doesn't say if you say the name of the Lord in vain. It says if you take the name of the Lord in vain. Now, first thing I need to point out is, first of all, we're not under the big ten or the big 613. So really, it doesn't have hardly anything to do with us today anyway, because you and I are not living under the law. We are under grace. And so because of that, first of all, that was written to Jews. It, 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 there's still some application to us that we can understand, but it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. But at the same time, um, I remember I asked a, a Messianic Jewish rabbi, a friend of mine who'd studied with all kinds of rabbis, I said, would you help me with that verse? Because it's bothering me. The idea that just saying, first of all, God's not his name. Uh, God is a, a, just a word to explain all deities. All right, so God is not God's name. 
Matter of fact, in the Hebrew, the closest you can find to it was, was you know, Yahweh and, and, and some other stuff. And then there's no vowels. So it's more like, you. <laughs> it's like, you know, if you're going to take his name in vain, say, you. You know, I mean, so, you know, and, and, and the reason, like, Jews don't say God, just that's a whole thing with their tradition. That's why if you see in the writings, it's G slash D, because they, they don't say the name God. When I asked this rabbi, I said, help me with this verse. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? And he started laughing. He said, nothing like your Western evangelical fundamentalism taught you. He said, he said the best way I can explain it to you is this. He said, when you, when you married your wife, she took your name. She didn't just say your name, she took your name. And for her to take your name in vain, it would be like for her a a week or two weeks or a month or a year later, all of a sudden to just say, forget you, run off with another guy and leave you and divorce you. That means she took your name in vain. And taking the name of the Lord in vain means that you say you're his and you have no desire to ever act like it or live like it. Or it also infers an instance of you saying something like the Lord said to me or thus says the Lord or God told me and he didn't say it at all. And so there's a lot, a lot of things. You see, just saying, oh my gosh, or oh my God, or, or GD. All right? I mean, it was interesting because I, I got to that part of the audible book and in my book it says G-O-D-D-A and then dot, dot. And I was like, how do I say this in the audible book? <laughs> and so I just said it. I was like, well, you know, they're going to think it when they read it anyway. It was like, it's just, it's just different when you're right. I didn't think about that when I wrote that. But anyway, I wasn't thinking in audible terms. Hallelujah. And so, but, but when we get these ideas that it's that. Now, I also told my children. My dad always had a real hard time with someone saying, oh, my God. That was the tradition he was raised in. So my children, I told them, when you get around Papa, This is a Romans 14 issue. Romans 14 is about you don't want to be a stumbling block to others on purpose. I mean, if you know somebody's going to be offended by something you do, then just just, just don't do it around them because you already know it's going to irritate them, it's going to bother them. And if you do it on purpose, then you're just getting ugly. You're just, you know, doing some ugly stuff and just don't do that. All right? So I told my kids, listen, when you're around Papa, make sure that you don't say this. Because they would say, oh my gosh, or oh my God. And, and I'd say, now listen, we know this does not offend God, but it might offend some people. And because if it's going to be offensive to some people, just don't do it. It's not that big of a deal. But I, I'll never forget, and I just put this in the Audible book, because I'm doing the Audible book with commentary. So, you know, you guys are getting part of it here, because you get the commentary also. But I mean, it's going to be in the whole book. And I said, I'll never forget about seven, eight years ago, I was in a restaurant with a pastor and, and we're sitting and we're talking in a booth and the couple in the booth next to us were cussing up a storm. I mean, just GD, Jesus. I mean, just cussing. And finally the pastor says, just a moment. And he looked at her and said, excuse me, your language is very offensive to me. You keep taking the name of my Lord in vain. And they, and they just looked at him and, like, and they went back to doing it. And I looked at him and I said, dude, Really? I'm like, you just did that? Do you think that's going to do any good? And how are we going to share the gospel with them now? Because now they just think you're an idiot. You know, I mean, come on, man. I mean, I mean, really? You're, you're so holy and you're so offended that thou is shouldest not as say as words in thou presence. I mean, it's just stupid stuff. And they don't care. If they're unbelievers, they don't care. It's just not even a thought. But now you're not going to be able to even reach them with the good news because you just 
took out a spiritual baseball bat and beat him over the head with it in the name of Jesus. You know, and, and it's like, listen, that's not going to change anybody. Plus, I told him, I said, plus, that ain't his name anyway, and God's not even offended by it. He's like, huh? And so then I explained this to him. See, we, we, we've grabbed it, and that doesn't mean you still can't teach your kids some principles and stuff like that. Just, we just shouldn't freak out on people when they say this stuff because it's not taking his name in vain. So any, any question or response about that one? What's that? Oh, he's like, just keep going. All right. Oh, this is going to be a loaded one right here. Myth number 17. The blessing of Malachi 3 is from giving 10% of your income. Ooh, I may have to read this one. If you've been in church at any time in your life, you've probably heard quoted around offering time, Malachi 3, 8 through 10. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes. That's been part of our problem. We forgot there's an S on it. In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. See, many of us were then taught in some form, this was speaking about giving 10% of our income to the church or our storehouse. And if we did this, it would open heaven to us and it would reverse the curse. Now, in Hebrew culture, first of all, in the new covenant, we're not under the curse. We've been redeemed from the curse. So whether you give a dime or not has nothing to do with the curse. And let me just say this for all of us, and I'm saying us because me too, for all of us that gave the 10% for years thinking that it removed the curse. uh, I I mean, listen, I, I tell folks all the time, all right, from 14 to 19, I ran as hard as I could from church, from God, and from the call of God in my life. I don't want nothing to do with church folk. I mean, I, I was just acting a fool and idiot and crazy, but I never stopped tithing. Listen, it was drilled in me to such a degree. It was like rebellion is one thing, being cursed is something else. <laughs> and I used to wear that badge with pride. You know what? Even when I wasn't serving God, I still, I'd get paid on Friday and I'd cash my check and go home and drop the tithe off to my dad and say, put it in church. And then I'd go out and get stoned, you know. But I mean, and, and there was times I should have died, but because I tithe, God protected me. Woo, man. Until one day, until one day I was actually reading it and, and the S popped off the page at me and I was like, wait a minute, you've robbed me in tithes. And then when you study, you found out there was like three to five tithes in the Old Testament. Uh, one was called a teruma, that was called a first fruits. First fruits was about two and a half percent and it's what you offered up to the high priest. Then there was the tithe. The tithe actually wasn't the first tenth, it was the tenth tenth. Every tenth animal. Now, so it wasn't even the first, God's first to your curse. Well, actually that's the first fruit. All right, then it's every tenth tenth of the tithe. And then the third tithe was one that you tithe to yourself for a bash. Like you're supposed to set aside 10%. So when you went to Jerusalem to bring the other tithes, you get to buy all kinds of food and everything else. And, 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 and you, get to, you get to eat on that one. And then there's a passage in here, and I got it written in the book, that God said, if, if the city that you normally take this to is too far away, like if you're on vacation, Take all the tithe, which was not money, by the way. It was, it was grains and animals. And convert it to money and then go buy yourself some food, some strong drink. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Nobody ever preached that one to me. It was like, 
He's like, this Sunday, man, go get some food and strong drink and throw yourself a party. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, I used to get up and preach to folks that if you go on vacation and you don't leave your tithe first, your car's going to break down. Oh, yes, I did. Oh, man, I was a good law preacher. Let me tell you, good law preacher. <laughs> man, I tell folks, I mean, I remember I had a lady come up to me one time at my dad's church at the altar, and she said, I just got diagnosed with cancer. And would you pray for me? I said, well, first of all, you've been tithing? Oh, yeah, and then she said, actually, no. I said, that's why you got cancer. Then didn't even pray for her. Like, ain't no reason to pray for you. You start tithing, God's going to heal you. Oh, yeah, I was sincerely wrong. <laughs> I was honest and real, but, man, hey, listen, I was, I was serious as a heart attack, man. I thought that was completely right and all that stuff. But yet the truth is to be a good Jew, to do Malachi 3, it was between 22 to 30% minimum. And so the 10% wasn't even removing the curse anyway. And so all these years, you're like, I'm doing the 10% so I don't have to be cursed. So my, so my car don't break down. So I don't get cancer. So, I, so I'm not cursed. That didn't remove the curse. The cross dealt with the curse. But now listen, now that doesn't mean that in the New Testament, that's still not a principle. I think first church tithes and offerings can still be principles. They're just not obligatory. You don't live by it. It's not a have to. But if you put your faith out there and you say, you know what, I believe that God wants me to give 10%, knock yourself out, man. Just don't make it a rule and a law. And if all of a sudden you miss it, I encourage people, listen, if the minimum under the law was 10%, you ought to shoot for at least 11. That's just me. But don't you think we ought to outdo the old covenant at least by a little bit? You know, and guess what? It shouldn't be obligatory. This is something that now you should want to do, not you have to do. This is not something that's forced. That's like really good news. And guess what? I'm blessed, so now I should want to be a blessing. This isn't about someone twisting my arm or telling me this is going to happen if you do or if you don't. And if you still live according to that principle, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't let anybody... Listen, we got grace folks that will put you into bondage over that. If you even use the word tithe, <laughs> you're still under the law. It's like, listen, man. Listen, it was a principle before it was a law. It was a principle under Abraham. And you and I, listen, do you realize that the new covenant is not just completely brand new? It's actually translated renewed covenant. Do you know that the new covenant is the Abrahamic covenant with better blood and better promises? That's why we're called still to this day. We're now the children of Abraham and all the blessings of Abraham are now ours because it was the same type of covenant God gave to Abraham, which was a grant covenant. And it was the same type of covenant that God gave to David. That's why in Matthew 1, when it's talking about the genealogy of Jesus, it's a Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Hallelujah. Why? Because he's saying it's the same covenant. All right, it's the same picture of what God did. It's, it's, it's a covenant that is a one-way covenant that all you do is just respond back by faith. That's, that's a beautiful thing. The old covenant was you do this, then I'll do this. New covenant, God says, I'll do this. Period. <laughs> all you got to do is believe it. Man, that's, that's some good news. So, uh, any, any, Anybody got any questions about that one? That one's, that one's a loaded one right there. All right, let's, let's move on. I have fun with this. Thanks for letting me do this. This is just fun. Uh, myth number 18. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump after some of these. Some, uh, some of these, the first 30 or 40 were, were ones that were really stirring in me. The power of God and the gifts of the Holy Spirit only manifest in your life after the infilling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
for some of you, if you were not raised in Pentecostal charismatic circles, that one you probably don't even like. I don't even understand that one. But a lot of us were. And I had a class in Bible school called Pentecostal Distinctives. And the whole class was about what distinguishes the Pentecostals from the rest of the body of Christ. We got to the third class and I raised my hand about in the third row and the professor said, "Uh, what, Jamie? I said, isn't this what divides us? Because it was all like, everyone is a second class citizen. If you're a Baptist, you're saved, but you ain't got the Holy Ghost. It's like, well, first of all, you can't be saved without the Holy Ghost, according to Romans chapter eight. So, I mean, that's why Baptists didn't listen to any of us because they're like, y'all don't even know your Bible. I mean, you cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. So, of course, Jesus didn't say out of heaven is going to drop the Holy Spirit. He said out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That means he's already there. Listen, when Jesus said, I and the Father are going to come make our abode with you, he's already in you, already there. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Godhead takes up residence on the inside of you. And you, you become, that becomes a reality to you and life to you. And it begins to produce this life. But it doesn't mean that until that, until you speak in tongues that you can't do all this stuff because the disciples were healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out devils before they ever spoke in tongues. And most of the charismatic writers that I listened to growing up, they're like, that's the beginning point. Until you are baptized in the Holy Ghost, you can't do any of these miracles and signs and wonders. But then, then I'd have a Presbyterian friend that had me over to his house one time and he cast devil out of somebody. I was like, wait a minute, you ain't supposed to be able to do that. <laughs> a Presbyterian, I didn't even know you were saved. <laughs> Come on, you know that when you're raised in certain circles, it's not necessarily taught that everyone else is in that way, but you come out thinking, man, you're the only group, man. You're the only ones. You are the remnant. You're God's holy, righteous remnant. You're the only ones living right and holy. And everybody else, man, they don't even know Jesus. <laughs> this stuff's all jacked up. And yet here, here you've got all of these, all of these folks. Because see, the moment... We receive Christ, and that comes alive in us. That, that imparts exousia, exousia. That's authority. It's, it's power. Now, it doesn't mean that dunamis isn't important, but all dunamis did, which was, which was Acts chapter 2, is it was like this extra little ignition. There's a reason it's the word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. It's like this dynamite that explodes the exousia out of you. It, 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 it manifests it maybe even in, in, in greater life, but the only thing that changed during Pentecost was not signs, wonders, miracles, healings, and the gifts of the spirit. What changed is the disciples stopped fighting. Listen, the main purpose for Pentecost, we, we read over it. It's unity. It's that actually folks stop fighting with each other and arguing with each other and it becomes unity. And it gives you a whole new language, which the language also brought about unity. Because if you remember back in the book of Genesis, when they began to build the tower of Babel, God said, I've got to go down and confuse the language because they're about to reach into heaven. And he confused the language to be able to produce the nations. But on the day of Pentecost, he he restored the language to reach the nations. And now, now there's this spirit language that's given. That's why, is it something that I believe we should all still uh, desire? Sure, absolutely. Paul said, man, I spoke in tongues more than y'all. But it doesn't make you a second-class citizen if you don't speak in tongues. Someone please say amen. amen. And then there's some movements that teach if you don't speak in tongues, you ain't going to heaven. And I'm like, what in the world has that got to do with going to heaven? Just All you got to do is believe in Jesus to get to heaven. I mean, I mean if you've got, you got to jump through all these hoops to get into heaven, man, we might as well just all give up right now. 
Because it ain't, ain't, it's just ain't going to happen. Not only that, but we have been, past tense, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly Christ. All right, those things I believe are still important. And then me, one of the reasons I had to resign from the denomination I was a part of is because part of their tenets of the faith is that, is that tongues is the initial physical evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I had to sit down with my superintendent one time and I said, well, actually, every time they prophesied, but not every time do they speak in tongues. I said, so I would say utterances and evidence, uh, but I don't, I don't believe tongues is the evidence. I think there's more things that also produce evidence of you being filled with the Holy Spirit. Come on, you with me? And it doesn't mean the other's not important. Uh, it, it's just, see, we, we, get, we, get, we get caught up in being dogmatic about some of this stuff. But yet, you know what, if you're around long enough, when someone gets dogmatic with me, I can poke about 15 holes in what they're dogmatic about. I mean, the more you understand scripture, the longer you live, you're like, eh, you know. Oh, okay, I see where you're coming from, but what about this, and what about this, and what about this, and what about that? And that's one of the reasons I, I wrote this book, not to be a, a, a concordance of truth that you can just go to and say, oh, we got to. So it, it's just to get you to think that maybe what you always thought was isn't what it all is. That just maybe there's some more. That maybe truth really is like an onion. The more you peel it, the more layers you find. Maybe that's really where this life is. So, uh, any, any, any questions or? Come on, he's bigger than what you think. He's definitely bigger than what we think. Regardless, all right. Let's move forward here. We doing all right? All right, this is a good one. This one I've shared on Facebook, I don't know how many times. This is one of my pet peeves. Myth 21, there are many races of people on the earth. Listen, nothing gets on my nerves quicker than when I hear preachers say, we have a multiracial church. Because the moment I hear it, I've actually said to them, I said, so you're telling me that you bring dogs and cats to church? Because there's only one race, it's human. You put two humans together, you get a human. Actually, no scripture in the Bible talks about multiple races. It talks about tongues, kindreds, tribes, languages. There's different cultures. We're multicultural. I mean, I mean, it's horrible when we put on a child. I mean, my, my daughter, my daughter is, her background is, is white German English. All right. My son-in-love, who she married, his background, his father is full-blown, full, almost full-blooded Mexican and Incan. And then his mother uh, is English and French. And so my little granddaughter, her last name is Rocha. She got a little Mexican in her. Not Mexican, a little Mexican in her. To be able to look at her and say, you're multiracial. What? No, you're a human. There's just different hues of humans. It's just different colors. <laughs> because how I many you know we're all dirt? There's red dirt, there's white dirt, there's yellow dirt, there's brown dirt, it's, there's tan dirt, there's cream dirt. It's, it, let me tell you, there's all kinds of dirt. That, that's why I've said this for years, and I've had people in the South get mad at me. I said, but we all come from a daddy who was a man of color. Because Adam means ish, red, ruddy, or color. And Eve didn't come from dirt. Eve came from bone. What color's bone? It's kind of whitish, grayish. Yeah. The only reason we could get all of the colors that we have is you had to have someone dark and someone light. 
to get all the colors that we have. I mean, it, it just the only way it could have happened in the first place. And I, one thing I love today is now we've got so much what people call interracial marriage. Listen, but by the time my granddaughter gets married and you do a census, I mean, more than half the country is going to have to say other. Thank God. Because we're finally getting out of labeling each other. Listen, there is, listen, it, it, is, it is labeling people as different races that caused slavery. It caused, it caused infanticide, genocide. Because if I view you as less than, then I can enslave you. I can demonize you. I can kill you. I, I can be Hitler and convince a whole nation of, of, of Lutherans people that started the Reformation, I can convince them you can kill all these Jews because they killed Christ and they're nothing. They're a less than race. That's why we, we in the church need to get this racial idea out of our brain. The kingdom, there's only one new man. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, red nor... Listen, there's not multi-races in the kingdom. There is humans, period. And, and, and I, it, it fires me up, it irritates me because my, my, my son, uh, he's about to marry uh, a beautiful young ebony woman. Amen. Her name is LaShyla. Y'all know she ain't light-skinned. Anyway, just. And we love shy with all of our heart. I mean, my family is going to be the full color all the way around. And we love it. There's no, well, I'm not going to have multiracial grandbabies. Man, I might pop you in the nose you say that. If I'm walking, pushing that beautiful little baby and you, you look funny, say, oh, you, like, yeah. <laughs> it's only one race. See, until we get that, a, a lot of all the mess, I mean, uh, man, listen, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said it, the most segregated hour on the planet still is 11 o'clock on Sunday. It still is. I mean, the one thing, because I, I learned something, man, the, the, when my wife and I lived in Tulsa for almost two years, a church we went to was extremely multicultural. And, and I learned there. The one thing I learned is that, is, that, is that the black folk put some rhythm in the white folk. <laughs> and then the white folk uh, bring a little more reverence to the other. And, and, and you got folks clapping on one, two, three, and four. That way you don't miss a beat. Hallelujah. Just <laughs> Me, I'm a drummer. I'm going to be on two and four, man. You clap on one and three. You just about drive, too much rhythm for that drives me up a wall. Anyway, Holly, in, in, any, any questions or something you want to say about that even? Anything at all? All right, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, myth number 22. There was no room for Jesus and his family in the inn or motel. All right. Now, what's interesting about this one, uh, I think about, about 15 years ago, I preached um, the Sunday before Christmas at my dad's church up in Bay City. And I, I, I just happened to do a study on it and to find that, do you know that the word in is a mistranslation? It really should say guest chamber. There is a completely different Greek word that's dealing like with a motel or a hotel room. That we always have this picture that there was no room in the hotel. Like, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph show up and the hotel wasn't there. Even though I want you to think about this. He is from the line of David coming back to Bethlehem. And in Jewish culture, uh, still to this day, let alone Middle East culture, uh, you didn't go to the hotel. You went to your family's house. 
And if the family's house was full, there would be other relatives that would bring you in, especially, uh, you know, a young lady that was pregnant and, and a son of David. And actually, what it really says is there was no room in the guest chamber. Now, when, when you study this out, the interesting thing I found about it is in Jewish homes back then, they had like the regular chambers, but then they had this almost like porch. It would be, it would be like if you had a, a clo- a, an enclosed porch in the front of your house. And they would bring the animals in when it was going to be really cold nights just so the wind wouldn't be bitter and they would be in that porch area. So it was literally like you would bring your animals in and keep them almost like at the front of your house. But then everyone else was actually in the home with the fire and everything to keep them warm. Uh, it, it wasn't a hotel that they weren't allowed in. They, you know, Jesus wasn't born in a manger out in a barn you know these these ideas, and and it wasn't it wasn't like the little pictures show us that we have sitting out in front of our churches where there's three kings. That's another one of them I won't get to. But there's there's three kings that showed up because the kings didn't show up at the at the manger. They showed up at his house because by then he was almost two years old, and they went back to Nazareth because they didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. Uh, the, that's why it took it took two years for the wise men to show up following the star and they stopped following the star to go directly to Jesus and they took they took a little they took a little hitch and went over to Herod and Herod said well I don't know where's this Messiah supposed to be born they said Bethlehem and so they take off towards Bethlehem the good news is they weren't in Bethlehem because otherwise they would have been killed they were in Nazareth but then it says that the 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 shepherds or the the wise men they all of a sudden saw the star again and they followed the star the star took them the star took them to Nazareth but Herod sent a bunch of men. Listen, I guarantee you, Herod sent a bunch of men to Bethlehem. Well, that's why they start killing babies under two years old. All right, but, but God didn't take them there. Why? Because he, it wasn't a little baby. He came to the house. Jesus didn't have a house. His daddy was a carpenter. <laughs> I mean, you know, this idea that well, Jesus didn't have a house. Yes, he did. His father was a mason. Do you know that carpenter in that culture wasn't a woodworker? Because first of all, you realize over in, over in Israel, there wasn't hardly any wood. Right. I mean, they, they had to like import wood from Lebanon, you know, and stuff like that. Like, you know, when they built the tabernacle, they had to, you know, when I was young growing up, uh, reading family devotions when I was five or six years old, I loved reading them passage because they went and got the shittim wood. Yeah. I just like saying it, you know, just, you know, it was a Christian cussing, you know. No. <laughs> I'd, I'd say it and go, you know. <laughs> But they had to literally import the wood from Lebanon because uh, literally what it meant then was to be a... Listen, Jesus wasn't a woodworker. He was a stonemason, which would make sense because he was the stone the builders rejected. And how many of you know we are living stones fitly framed and joined together, being built into a house by him? How many of you know he knows how to put the stones in place? Why? He was a master... Mason in his personal, in his physical life, but he was even a bigger Mason in his spiritual life. And his father is the greatest builder the world has ever known. All right, well, created this world, created the universe. And so we get these ideas that, you know, that there was this hotel and there wasn't a hotel. It was actually not room. Now, I, I, also, I also believe this. This is just a Jamieism. Right, I believe because she was pregnant under the law, they were actually supposed to stone her because she wasn't married yet. And, and so the family, still out of grace and love, didn't let her into the guest chamber in the house, relegated her outside. Uh, and uh, partly is because there wasn't room. 
Uh, that might have been a good excuse. I don't know. But they weren't letting her in because they were supposed to, under law, take her out and stone her. But thank God they didn't. Thank God they didn't. So any, any questions about that? That one's just a kind of a fun and interesting one. All right, let me, let me move forward. Uh, myth number 24, the age of accountability. Many of us have heard about the age of accountability and how God gives grace to children who have not comprehended the gospel or have not yet learned to discern between good and evil. This idea comes from the Hebrew mindset that a child was not grown or considered an adult until 12 to 13 years old where they go through a ceremony which makes them sons of the law called bar mitzvah. And considering an adult, I, I personally am not against the idea, but what, what do you do with someone that suffers from a mental problem and at the age of 40 still can't comprehend? Or a deaf mute who cannot hear it or confess it? Is there extended grace for them? Many in the early church believed, like Augustine at the Council of Carthage in 418, if a child was not baptized as an infant, they are suffering in hell with the damned. Really? But, but more mildly put, the Catholic Church changed this in the Middle Ages to they were not thrown into hell, but were in a place of limbo where God's presence was not. Then men like John Calvin from the post-Reformation era was reported as supposedly saying, hell is riddled with infants. Which would not surprise me since he believed in limited atonement and that only the elect were atoned for and not the whole world. So if a child died as a baby and they were not predestined as the elect, then they are being tormented in hell for all of eternity, which is repulsive to any sane person. Uh, could I get a few more amens there? Thank you. The only scripture that throws a monkey wrench in this idea of an age of accountability is found in 2 Chronicles 36.9 where it says Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> An eight-year-old. <laughs> you know, I mean, just think about that. An eight-year-old, right, yeah, did evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> no kidding. You mean he was probably a little selfish? You know, he went, so here's an eight-year-old doing evil, and God was displeased. So the question is, how do we view God's mercy and justice in these situations? Neither of these are easy questions. Now let me, let me just say this, and I'm going to give you a personal testimony. When I, was, when I was 10 years old, my family, we moved from Alpena, Michigan, to Bay City. Uh, my dad pastored almost, almost 10 years, nine years, eight and a half, nine years in Alpena. And I had my best friend, his name was Todd Raymond. And Todd was about two and a half years older than me. So when I moved, I just turned 10. And Todd was almost 13. He was 12 and a half, almost 13. And Todd lived at our house. I mean, he lived about a block away from us. His mother was strung out on prescription drugs all the time. His father wasn't in the picture. His, his younger brother was, uh, had, had, had mental health issues. And so our house was a safe place for him. Uh, you know, he'd come to church with us. He received Jesus, went to camp with me, you know, was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, felt the call of God in his life. But then we moved. And we were, we were the stability, our family. I mean, he ate at our house almost every night. I mean, he literally lived at our home because it was safe to him. He, he felt peace there, felt safe. And so we moved uh, right after school got out in June. And we get to October of that year, and I come home from school one day, and he had just turned 13. And my parents sent me and pulled me into the living room. They said, listen, son, 
man, we got to tell you something. We're not sure how to tell you. I said, what's going on? They said, Todd died yesterday. I said, what do you mean he died? I said, I just talked to him on the phone last week. That, that's my best bud. And he said, well, he, he OD'd on heroin. I said, on what? I mean, he'd never done drugs before. We found out later that it was the first time he'd ever done it, and he'd got around some, some people. We, our influence wasn't there. He got around some friends, and they tried to get him to try this, and it was a bad batch. And literally the first time he ever did it, it killed him, he OD'd. And I mean, I was heartbroken. I, I looked at my dad. I said, well, dad, Todd's in heaven, right? And he's like, oh, son, Todd's not in heaven. I said, well, well, no, understand. I think, you know, my dad would probably say different today. This was a long time ago. He said, well, son, you know, he's past the age of accountability. I said, but he accepted Jesus. I mean, dad, you know, you and I were a part of laying hands on him at camp. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, praying in the Spirit. He had encounters with God. He said, but son, he, he's, he's, past, he's past 12 years old. He's fully accountable, and he, he did that. And I, I, I remember I walked away, and I remember I looked at my dad, and I said, so you're telling me that if this would have happened a month ago, when he was 12 years old, on the 12th month, on the 30th day, at 11.59, he'd be good. I mean, I want you to think about that just for a minute. But because it happened a month after he turned 13, sorry, dude, don't pass go, don't collect $200, straight to fry him. Hmm? And, and let's be honest, if we honestly believe, I'll never forget, and I think I mentioned this when I was here uh, on, on a Sunday the last time. If we believe, because I remember there was, a, there was a young guy about 19, 20 years old that started coming to my parents' church. And just in dinner discussions, they were talking about, how man, God's radically changed this young man. But we're kind of concerned because he's still struggling in some areas. Because back then, you know, you get saved, but you could lose it, like, real quick. You know, that's why you know, I got saved 100 times before I was 12. You know, I mean, just got saved over and over and over again. And so they're like, you know, we, we, you know he's doing good, but we're, we're really concerned because we're not sure he's going to stick. And, and I, remember I, remember I, uh, I remember sitting there thinking, well, you know, if you're concerned that he's not going to make it, and if he doesn't make it, the alternative is eternal torture. Remember I said, well, Dad, aren't you baptizing him next week? He said, yeah. I said, why don't you just keep him under? I mean, I mean, wouldn't that be wouldn't that be more kind and and more just? I mean, matter of fact, matter of fact, don't you think it'd be wise that from the time your child is born till they're twelve? I mean, if they're good kids and they're obedient, you know, take them to get baptized and pull them up. But if they've been little stinkers, just keep them under, because at least they're going to go to heaven. I mean, if we really follow this, see, part of our problem is we've not thought a lot of our theology out all the way. And if we really believe that most people aren't going to pray that prayer and they're not going to make it, wouldn't it be better? I mean, if you just maybe believed in pro-choice, at least they get in. See, anyway, y'all can think about that just a little bit. Obviously, we don't because God's about life. Okay, he, he wants us to have life. But I mean, we get these ideas. And I remember from that moment on, it started a shift in me of shifting me away from God. Because I was like, what kind of father would do that to one of his kids because they made a mistake? I mean, I mean, you take a drug because you're just trying to be in with your friends and you don't know it's laced and it's a bad batch and you die? Sorry, dude. You're all done. 
Listen, it, there's no justice in that. There's no mercy in that. There's no, it doesn't look anything like Jesus. You can say amen or oh me, that's all right. Listen, I'm just telling you that we get these ideas, the age of accountability. Do you know that I have a quote down, and I may not quote it exactly, but John Calvin also made this statement. He said the, the incredible, uh, he said, uh, the joy of when God holds a toddler over the fires of hell, and he said, and the child turns and hisses at God. The joy that God will have. Jonathan Edwards, the famous preacher, sinners in the hands of an angry God, he said the incredible joy and bliss in the heart of a believing parent while in heaven looking over the abyss into hell, which, by the way, I mean, that's, that's just nowhere in the Bible. Anyway, that's, that's, that's from the story of Lords, the rich man and, and Lazarus. That's, that ain't got nothing to do with anything. But anyway, while looking over the abyss into hell, first of all, if I'm in heaven and I can see people being tortured, I ain't in heaven no more. All right, there ain't no joy about that whatsoever. But when they see their unbelieving children being tormented, they are full of joy because of the justice of God. Listen, what kind of sick mind comes up with something like that? First of all, if I'm in heaven and I'm watching my kids being tortured, my response is going to be, can I take their place? I don't want my kids. Listen, we give up our lives for our kids. You, you think there's going to be joy? People say, well, you're just, you're just not going to know. You're going to forget everything. There's no scripture for that whatsoever. Bible says you'll be known as you were known. If your soul is going to heaven, your soul is going to remember everything that you've ever been through and everything you've ever experienced. For God to cause you to forget makes you less than who you are. It's just... It's just silly and ridiculous. So these ideas, now where the age of accountability comes from is the Hebrew idea of becoming a son of the law. That's why I leave the afterlife issues up to God. I just think God is going to be a whole lot better judge than we are. And when it comes to the afterlife, I tell people, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I had some folks last week after the service, they was like, so... You know, do you believe that when someone breathes their last breath, that's the last chance? I said, I don't know. I can't find any scripture for it. Can't find any scripture that says once you breathe your last breath, that's your final opportunity. But there is a bunch of scripture that talks about Jesus actually preaching to the dead. Jesus actually went into the grave, according to Peter, and he preached to the wicked, preached the gospel to them, and then emptied it out. So there's scripture that gives post-mortem opportunity to believe does that mean I'm going to preach it as doctrine no because I don't know but I'm hopeful I certainly hope that that little 16 year old Muslim girl that's been raised in an ISIS family who's never heard the name Jesus and gets a bomb dropped on her over in Syria you know all of a sudden eternal torture they're, they're, listen the punishment should at least fit the crime I mean you never rejected God you never even, you never even heard about him I mean, you're believing you're serving your God and then you find out something later. So I leave that all up to Jesus. Hmm? I, I just think that that makes your theology a whole lot easier. People say, no, no, I know where they're going. Really? I mean, I, I, I had one preacher tell me, I'm telling you right now, Gandhi is burning in hell. I said, are you sure? I mean, really, are you sure? I mean, do you know that Gandhi at 19 years old read through the New Testament twice, showed up to a Christian church? to actually confess Jesus. And when he got to the door, they wouldn't let him in the door because of the color of his skin. And so the rest of his life, even though he acted more like Jesus than most Christians, laid down his life for others and everything that he did when it come to the gospel of peace and when it come to manifesting 
the Sermon on the Mount, even though he lived more like it. See, he believed. He just didn't want nothing to do with Christians. That's why he was the one that made it famous. He made the quote famous. Your Christ I like. Your Christians not so much. Hmm? So are you sure he's not in? I mean, how do you know? I mean, how, how do you know anybody's not? See, that's, it's really arrogance, guys. Let me tell you something. It is arrogant to believe that you know something about where someone is in the afterlife. None of us know. All I do know is this. I know as for me, because I believed according to 1 John chapter 4, I have no fear to stand before God on judgment day. That's why I preach the gospel. I preach the gospel because I want people to have nothing to be afraid of when they close their eyes. I want them to know, you know what? You can know ahead of time. You ain't got to be scared. All right, you can, stand, you can stand before God and know that you're loved and you're accepted. And man, you ain't got nothing to worry about. Everything else, I leave that up to God. I'm, the older I'm getting, I'm becoming more and more of an agnostic when it comes to the afterlife. I just don't know. All right, And so you get around any preacher or Christian that just tells you they exactly know. Anyway, I'm just telling you, I'd run. Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't have much to do with them because it's just it's arrogance and pride, guys. There's just no way we can fully know that. All right, now, myth number 26. I got a few more minutes. There are streets of gold in heaven. Now, you see, a lot of what we believe is songbook theology. Because how many know that our songs actually produce uh, more of our theology sometimes in our sermons? You know why? It's because people will forget a sermon. They don't forget a song. That's why David would get a revelation and he'd send it over to Asaph, the chief musician. He'd say, listen, put this to song because these folks will forget it when I tell them, but they'll never forget it when we sing it. I know that's true. How do I know it's true? My baloney has a first name. <laughs> listen, listen you, there, there can be a song that you maybe haven't heard in 30 years. And, 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 you, and you go somewhere, you go to a mall or you go out to a festival and they're jamming it. I, I mean, listen, once you hear a song, you don't forget. I mean, I can stand up here and say, don't stop. See, I, I mean, it's just it's, songs get in us, man. They're just, they become a part. That's why, that's why a lot of times our songs produce as much, sometimes if not more of our theology, which is why our song with theology has screwed us up more than anything else. Big time. All right. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Who says? I mean, I'm probably not going to get to that one, but I mean, you got a, a mansion in heaven. Who says it? it's, a, it's a mistranslation? That's why it's not in the newer translations, mainly King James and New King James. In my father's house are many mansions. Mansions is a horrible translation. It's in my father's house are many rooms, abodes. There's three. Daddy's got a three-room house. Outer court, inner court, holy of holies. Okay, listen, he's talking to Jews. Jews know what he, when, when he said in my father's house, they're like, that's the tabernacle. They knew exactly what he's talking about. If it were not so, I would have told you so. In other words, you guys already know it. Daddy's got a three-room house. <laughs> listen, it's in my father's house so many rooms, not in your house. He's not building you a house. You're the house he's building for his house. You see, we, we get all these ideas, but the same thing with streets of gold. Do you know that when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, it starts talking about this new Jerusalem, and it actually says there's a street of gold. Not streets. There's a way. There's a golden way. Matter of fact, do you know that actually the city of the new Jerusalem actually says it is a golden 
All gold, pure gold, transparent city. Transparent. Now, how, how does, or it's crystal. He said it's literally crystal. Uh, it, it's not only gold, but there's, it's, it's crystal. What is, what is crystal? It's when you take sand and you put incredible heat on it and it crystallizes and it becomes like glass and you can see through it. That means that the new Jerusalem could be sitting right here and you not see it. Maybe because the new Jerusalem is you. How do I know that? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cause you, according to, according to Revelation 3, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to cause you. He speaks to the one church, and he said, I'm going to cause you to be a pillar in the temple of my God. He that overcomes, you're going to be a pillar in the temple of my God, and I'm going to put my name on you in the name of my city, New Jerusalem. Right on your forehead, New Jerusalem is you. It doesn't say, I saw a city coming out of heaven. He said, I saw something coming out of God. Come on, who's in God? Come on, come on. Hello, city, sit on a hill. Come on, we are now come to Mount Zion, the city of God with an innumerable company of angels and the church of the firstborn and the spirits of just men who've been made perfect. That's you! Okay, that, that, but that's where this, there's a street. It doesn't say there's streets. Now, I'm not saying that there's maybe not more than one street. It's just not what the scripture says. There is a street of gold, not streets of gold. Matter of fact, when you go over to the book of Exodus, I, I, I love the passage in Exodus when when Moses is crying out and he's asking God to show him his glory and show him everything else, it says that God, God shows him, actually takes him, shows him his footstool, and then shows him the glory of, of who he is in heaven. And then it says he shows him a paved work, shows him sapphire stones. Uh, matter of fact, what's interesting is that paved work, do, do you know that when you study it, do you know that the Via Della Rosa, which was the road that, that Jesus carried the cross up, it, the Via Della Rosa is actually called the place of the pavement? The, actually, actually, what God showed Abraham was the finished work. Or what, you know, or what he showed Moses. He said, Moses, listen, I'm going to show you what this work, I'm going to show you the place of the pavement. I'm going to show you this finished work. It is the street. It is a golden street. It's God. It's all God. It's not a bunch of streets of gold up in heaven because the truth is this. I, I don't know why we get so excited about this city in heaven when heaven's coming here. Heaven's going to be here. All right? It doesn't mean that absent from the body, you're not present with the Lord. But... But because there's no time in heaven, I mean, eternity is ending and beginning and end at the same time. So if you died a thousand years ago or you die a thousand years from now, and by the time heaven comes here and everything's said and done, you're both going to feel like you've been there about the same amount of time. <laughs> so everybody gets excited. We're going to go there for seven years and we're going to have a party. <laughs> or three and a half, depending on... anyway. <laughs> depending on who you've talked to, we're, we're going to go there and we're going to have a party first and then we're coming back here. He said, no, listen, it's always been about heaven coming here, not about earth going to heaven. And we've got all caught up in, in, in all of that focus and all that stuff. There's not a bunch of streets of gold. And I encourage you to read that one later. There's some interesting stuff. I've got just a few more minutes now. I didn't ask the last two. Any questions on the last two? All right. You can think about them. And after everything I said next week, maybe we'll... At the end, y'all have more to talk, think about. Because some of you have been reading the book too. Myth 27, I am the church, so I don't need to attend a corporate gathering. Um, listen, I've, 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 I've seen folks do whole t-shirts. I am the church. It's like, no, you're not. There's no I in church. Uh, the very word church, ecclesia, is called out ones, plural. 
It was always a corporate gathering. And it was nearly always the governing, the governing group, like the Senate of every city uh, and, and, and every town, uh, actually, in those cultures. When Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my ecclesia, the, the, the apostles knew exactly what he was talking about. They're like, oh, that's, that's like the Senate. That's the government, the ruling government that makes rulings, declarations, decrees, and judgments over cities and, and states and areas and regions. And church is not just, we also know it's not a building. Someone say amen. It's not a, listen, you don't go to church, all right? But there's no I in church. It, it, it's not an individual thing. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am a child of God, but I am not the church. We are the church. Matter of fact, you know that in Hebrew culture, they, they called it uh, uh, the, the synagogue, and there was someone called the archai synagogus, which was like the chief elder, and that you were not an actual synagogue or ecclesia until you had at least 12 males. Uh, that's why Jesus had 12. He, he had his own church. All right, he was walking around with an ecclesia. All right, that's why they, they knew, they completely understood exactly what he was saying. And an interesting part, and this may be something I have to unpack in a couple of years, I don't know, but just, do you know that if you study the word ecclesia in Greek and you go all the way back to the Hebrew word, do you know that nearly every time that word is used, it's not talking about the whole congregation? It's talking specifically about the government. Uh, it literally gives an inference that not everybody that's a Christian is a part of the ecclesia, uh, but the governing part, bishops, elders, deacons, fivefold ministry gifts. And, and that shouldn't freak us out. We're all a part of the congregation, but it doesn't mean everybody governs and rules. Hallelujah. Hmm? Uh, there, there, there's certain parts of that, but anyway, that's a whole, we haven't discussed that yet. That's another discussion in the future. Talk about that. Ah, myth number 29, and I'll be able to do two more. The Holy Spirit came from heaven on the day of Pentecost. They were in an upper chamber. They were all in one accord. When the Holy Ghost descended, as was promised by the Lord, oh, Lord, send the power. Just remember that? That's old school ones right there. You were too charismatic. You were... I was taught this from the time I was very young, that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost showed up on the earth. And my question was always, and what happened in John 20? Because Jesus dies, ascends to heaven, pours his blood in the mercy seat, comes back. So by the way, that was one second coming. Anyway, I mean, Jesus said, Jesus said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you so. For I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am there, you may be also. That where I am there, you may be also. And he said, if I come again, I will receive you to myself. He came again for 40 days, preached the kingdom to them. You know what's always interesting to me about that passage? Jesus walks through a door. Windows are shut, doors are shut. First of all, nobody asked him how he got in there. I got to be honest, that one, that was, you know, I don't know about you, but I would be the guy going, you know, <laughs> dude, how'd you get in here? <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cool. Can I do that? I mean, I would at least have to know something. But what's interesting is he had been dead for three days. He had just gone to hell and he had just gone to heaven. And when he walked through the door, nobody asked him where he'd been. 
Why don't you think about that? No one said, where you been? You know what they asked them? Have you now come to establish your kingdom? They weren't afterlife minded at all. It would be like, it would be like Pastor Andy. God forbid, this isn't going to happen. But Pastor Andy all of a sudden just dropped dead. You guys have a funeral for him. And the next Sunday, he comes waltzing in. Hey, how you guys doing? I guarantee you at least one of you would say, uh, where you been? <laughs> Dude, did you see a light? Was it white or orange? No, no. <laughs> what, what, what did you see? You had an out-of-body experience. What happened? I mean, someone, not one question. They didn't say, have you been to heaven? Have you been to hell? They said, have you come to establish your kingdom? Man, what an interesting, interesting perspective. They weren't. They weren't talking all about what was going to come later in the afterlife and, and everything else. Because in John 20, Jesus walks in and he goes, he breathes on them and he says, receive. It's a Greek present participle. Receive now the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't come on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was already in them on the day of Pentecost. It says there came a sound from heaven, not a spirit from heaven. And it, the sound filled the room where they all were. And they then began to speak in tongues because Jesus said, out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. This spoke he of the Holy Spirit who had not yet been poured out. Why? Because he had not breathed the Holy Spirit into them yet. See, this is the kind of stuff that put me in bondage for years. I would go to, you know, when, when you're raised in more of the Pentecostal charismatic stream and someone says, okay, we'd always have altar calls. And if someone received the Holy Spirit, it was normally pretty dramatic. You know, I mean, there was normally something, someone would flop on the floor, or they'd shake and, you know, I mean, run. I mean, I'd had one lady take off running one time. The problem is I had brought the monitors down to the front so I could hear, and she didn't have her eyes open. She hit that monitor, man, just bam, hurt herself, and then blamed the Holy Ghost. Anyway, I just... <laughs> But we, 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 get, we, get these, we get these then ideas. And I remember for years it put me in bondage because how God did it for me was actually actually pretty gentle. He gave me, he gave me just like a, a couple syllables and it was a by faith issue. It wasn't this. I was waiting for this. And so the enemy was able to lie to me all the way to Bible school. It says, you never received nothing. You made that up. That wasn't nothing. And then I, I, my sophomore year of college, I'm, I'm in the prayer room with my buddy Kev. Kev. Kev was a preacher's kid from Iowa. was the biggest nerd you ever saw in your entire life. He, he, was, he was 6'2", 120 pounds soaking wet. Soaking wet. And his pants were, you know, now it's, now it's the style. I, I, listen, I don't understand. I, you ain't going to see me wearing one of them suits. In my pants. I, I, don't, I, I don't get it. It's like now it's in style to have high waters, you know, which is floods. But, I mean, his pants were always all up high. I mean, he was just a nerd, but, man, loved God. I mean, people pick on Kev, man, I'd about take him out. I'd be like, don't mess with Kevy. Kevy's my butt. And so we're sitting in the prayer room, and I said, man, I'm going to be traveling in this band for the school. We're going to be doing all these cans. Man, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he started praying with me, and all of a sudden, these few syllables come out. And he's like, well, what's that? I said, that happens every time I pray. He said, that's the Holy Spirit. I said, no. <laughs> he said, yeah, man, what are you waiting on? But, you see, I was waiting for this. I mean, I would go to altars, and they'd say, the Holy Ghost, he's falling right up. Fall, fall, fall. And people were flying all over, and I'd be standing there. thinking, man, there must be something wrong with me. He must not like me. Because I didn't know how to give CDs, courtesy drops either. I wasn't good at that. 
because uh, you all know you've probably done it before. But it's because you know there's some preachers that are going to pray for you all the way up to the parking lot. You might as well fall and just get up so you can go home. <laughs> I've been in them services, man. They start praying for you and they start pushing on you and you just, man, we're going to go all the way to the parking lot. Just go ahead and flop. That's Dr. Bob. You know, just he's, he's going to pray for you all day long. Just go on ahead, man. Just think it up. Say, God bless you. I'll never forget, I was, I was, in, uh, I was in Kentucky. I was preaching by uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. And this was back in the 90s. I was preaching a week-long revival meeting. And I got up and I preached a sermon on what happens when God gets you. Acts 1, verse 8. You'll receive power. Lombano means to take hold of. You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The word upon, E-P-I in the Greek, literally means, it literally means uh, like, like when he has charge of you. It's not coming upon as in dropping on your head. It's like when he has charge of you. So it's not about you getting the Holy Spirit. It's about the Holy Spirit getting you. And, and I got up and I preached how if you're a believer, you already have the Holy Spirit. But he wants to have you. And it's about a simple yielding and submitting and surrendering by faith, letting him flaw. There was an 88-year-old man on the way up to the altar to get prayed for. He got so drunk. I mean, I mean we're talking just, he, I mean, he got inebriated in the Holy Spirit. Nobody prayed for him, nothing else. And I kept watching it. And I'm like, you know, first of all, I was concerned about him. I mean, he's 88 years old. You know, I mean, he's just... He couldn't stand up, and his wife's trying to hold him up. I'm like, would somebody go, was there an usher or something? I mean, don't you see this? I mean, I thought they were going to hurt themselves. Afterwards, he come up to me just laughing. He said, young man, I've been seeking the Holy Spirit for 44 years. I said, huh? 44 years, and you ain't been a, you ain't turned into a Baptist? <laughs> I think after 44 years, I'd have said, I don't think there's anything to this, man. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. But you see, all those years, he kept waiting for something to fall on him. And I informed him that what he was waiting for was already inside of him. And he just had to allow the Holy Spirit to manifest out. It completely rocked his world, completely set him free, because the Holy Spirit did not come from heaven on the day of Pentecost. He came in Acts chapter 20. He flowed out on the day of Pentecost. God had to release a sound. Just like there was water over the deep, and God said he released a sound from heaven, and then that which was in the water began to come out and began to explode. The same thing happened because guess what? God breathed on Adam. Adam became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus shows up as God now in his resurrected form, breathes on a new creation and starts a whole new world. Probably shouldn't read that right now after that. <laughs> shouldn't sing that song just... Poor R. Kelly, bless his heart. Now, let me, let me do one more. Actually, you know what I'm going to come back to? I'm going I'm 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 to do number 40, and that's just because of who's, who's, uh, who's here tonight because they got uh, attacked on Facebook for this one. Uh, myth, number, myth number 40. <laughs> uh, I'm almost there. Myth number 40. God will tell some Christians someday. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Let me tell you guys, that one right there, that one kept me in bondage up until almost 30 years old. I remember because every time we had a revival meeting, if the preacher wanted to get the altar full of people, he'd get to the end of his sermon, he'd say, now Matthew chapter seven tells us that you can do miracles in God's name. You can heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out devils. And at the end of your life, 
God look at you and say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. He's talking to Christians here and telling them because they never had a relationship with God, they ain't getting in. And I remember just sitting there thinking, well, man, I give up. Are you telling me that I can serve God faithfully for years? And like Moses, I get to the end of my life and I strike the rock rather than speak to it. And all of a sudden, I'm not in? Really? I mean, it's, it's just that easy and that verse, man. I ran to the altar, I don't know how many times, going, God, you know what I mean, man? I could. That's why for then five years, I ran as hard as I could from everything that I had to do with church because I figured, why even try, man? It's too hard. Because then at the end of my life, he's just going to kick me to the curb anyway. Even though he said he'll never leave me nor forsake me, he was just teasing. But then a couple things happened. I began to actually really understand context. Began to realize that Jesus wasn't talking to any Christians because there were none yet. There were no Christians until the covenant actually kicked in, until after the resurrection. Jesus was speaking to Jews under the law, and he was talking to them about their works. Now, how many of you know you and I aren't saved by works? So why would we think this has anything to do with us? I mean, first of all, that, that's the first thing that should stick out to us. You worker of iniquity, and you law, some translations say you lawless one. Well, first of all, we're not under law in the new covenant. The only law we're under is the law of liberty, which is the law of love. And so we don't have to be afraid of Matthew chapter 7. Not only that, but when you study the context, you start all the way in Matthew 5, you go all the way up to Matthew 8. Jesus is actually speaking to Jews on the Sermon on the Mount, and he continues it, and he's actually talking about a destruction that is going to take place within, within a generation. He's actually he's referring to 70 AD. How do we know that? Because you get into chapter 8, and he starts talking about those that hear his word and do his word are ones that build their house on the rock. And when the winds, waves, storms, and trouble of life comes, their house will stand. But those who hear his word, his message that he was bringing to Jews, I mean, you know, he didn't come bringing a message but to the lost sheep of Israel. And those who hear the word and do not listen to him, when the winds, the waves, and the storms of life come, he said, they're the ones that build their house on the sand. And he says, great will be the fall of that house. What house? He's talking about the temple. Because to the Jews, the greatest destruction that could ever be was when their temple was destroyed. And he's saying, in that day, they will say, what day? We never ask what day. We think, what, that's after we die? That's after we die and go to heaven? That day was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. It was talking about judgment day when it came to the Jews that was about to happen about 40 years in the future. And Jesus prophesied all over that thing. And those Jews that heard what he said did not receive him as their Messiah because if they would have listened to him and if they would have changed their way, and they would have loved their enemies rather than war against their enemies. They wouldn't have had to die and Jerusalem would not have had to been destroyed. All right, and so Jesus is specifically talking about that. Plus, a light bulb should have at least went on in all of our hearts when Jesus said, he would say, I never knew you. Do you think Jesus is ever gonna tell one of us who he knows by name were his children. I never knew. That, that, would be, that would be like, I meet, I meet Pastor Andrew one day. And we get to know each other. He knows, gets to know me. I get to know him. And then, you know what? He does some stuff I don't like. And so then at the end of his life, someone brings him before me and says, listen, man. It'd be one thing me look at him and say, I don't know you. I don't know you. But I never knew you. It'd be one thing to say, you know what? We don't have a relationship anymore. Now, it would be another thing if that passage would have said, you never knew me. 
That's normally how it's preached. Normally how it's preached is you never built an intimate relationship with Jesus, but it's not what it says. It says, away from me, I never knew you. You and I never have to be afraid of Jesus ever telling us, I never knew you. Because that means he never, ever knew you. That's nothing we have to be. Matter of fact, I ain't got nothing to do with anybody on this side of the cross. Listen, if that don't set you free all by itself, something out of it. But it amazes me, people still want to use those verses. But it's written in red, brother. Well, of course, everything Jesus said is important, but guess what? Context is everything. He wasn't speaking to Christians. He was speaking to Jews under the law. There's things we learn. There's things we apply. But that's the specific of what it was and who it was written to. That's the heart of heavenly father. Hallelujah. That's just a good God, isn't it? Now, we're going to stop with this, that one, but uh, any, any, any questions on any of that? Yeah. It's, it's uh, number 20. Okay. Uh, Jesus died on Wednesday. Uh-huh. There's a scripture that nobody uses. If I can read it in this light. And it's in Exodus chapter 12. Mm-hmm. Moses is given the explanation of what to do with the Passover lamb. Yeah. And he says, starting in verse 3, speak to the congregation of Israel saying... On the tenth of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, and so on. But then down at verse uh, 6, it says, Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. (laughs) Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Interesting. I've read all kinds of commentaries. Matthew Henry even says when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on on his triumphal entry, that's on the 10th of the month. And then the next line is, and he's going to die five days later. He uses the 10th as his coming in. The the Jews separated the lamb, in case you didn't know, on the 10th, kept it for four days. They, They usually had four, five, six of them, and they watched them every day. If it come up with a runny nose, bad eye, a limp, it was taken out. Right. Now it's not it wasn't spotless. And Jesus came into Jerusalem to be watched by the Pharisees and, and the rabbis, and they questioned him. And I thought, thought it was quite interesting, too, that if you read about his Passion Week, the experts will say, this is what he did on Monday, this is what he did on Tuesday, he did nothing on Wednesday. Nothing is recorded it was of what he did. A high Sabbath day, yeah. And it's very interesting. The most important human being on the planet, and they don't record anything on that day. They don't even say he went off to rest. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting. But anyway, very interesting. Uh, if you take that scripture that he came in on the tenth, and it was to be killed at twilight on the evening of the fourteenth. That means he was killed on a Thursday at sundown. If we go to the Old Testament, which is Jesus concealed. Correct. Jesus came into Jerusalem on the 10th, Sunday, 
triumphal entry. He's watched for four days. He was killed on Thursday evening. And you mentioned in your book, Jesus said, uh, I will be like Jonah three days and, and three, three nights. nights. Right. And I like your ex example of if he died on Friday, it's impossible. you can't get three days and three nights. No, it's impossible, yeah. But Thursday, if he died during the daylight hours, you still have Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. Friday, Saturday, and he rose after sunrise Sunday. Three yeah. days, three nights, either way. Sure. Your book says when that you thought he died right. on Wednesday night. Right. For the Jewish days, that makes sense. But that's the same explanation they used for him dying on Friday. Because any part of the day could be evening and morning. Right. So Friday evening and morning, Saturday yeah. evening and morning. Well, and, and, and I even said in there that the truth is that has been debated. Right. I have for a couple seen thousand all years. Kinds of, <laughs> all kinds now, of... Now, uh, now, the only thing that I brought on there that, it, that I think is important is the mistranslation in one of the Gospels, because each Gospel kind of records it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. But the mistranslation, where it talks about that it was a, it was a Sabbath day, but, but it's actually plural, uh, because there were, that was the high Sabbath days, and there was the two Sabbaths. That, that was going on well, at the same time. Every day that week of the celebration was a Sabbath day. Yeah, well, but, but there was the high Sabbath days. Mm -hmm. And, like, Wednesday was one of them, which is why he would rest. And then the, the ladies that were bringing the, all the spices and everything, they wouldn't have been able to buy them or do anything mm -hmm. on that day. Yes. And so that was more, I think that was more the point. But I, I, I can see that, that even Thursday would fit. I think my main point was there's no way Friday could. Right. There, there's no way three days and three nights is Friday night to Sunday morning. I mean, it's just impossible and to fit three days and three nights in there. Throw this in there too. A lot of people think that Jonah prayed for three days and three nights in the great fish. Right. If that's the case, Jesus said, as Jonah was, so I will be. Yeah. So that means Jesus didn't die on the cross? He, he somehow was in prayer all this time? No, I, no I, first of all, it, 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 yeah, that's interesting. But what's interesting about Jonah is it never says Jonah was alive in the fish. Right. I mean... Who knows? I mean, Jonah, if you get swallowed by a fish, you're probably dead. But, right, but then he got spit out on the shore, resurrected. And so, you know, I, like, I personally, I, mean, I think we've, you know, ever since I was a little kid, the little, little felt, you know, on the wall in Sunday school, got this picture of this big, huge whale, and Jonah's like, you know, got a little fire going, in, you know, inside there having this discussion with God. I'm, I'm not sure if Jonah wasn't dead. And then he was spit out, made completely alive. No, no that's, that's really good. Yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> oh, sorry. These youngins. No, um, this might be a difficult for a few people that weren't here last week. Mm -hmm. um, not so much a question, just uh, I've been throwing away <laughs> countless sermons that I heard when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, hello. Over this last week. Hello. And uh, <laughs> dealing with Lucifer, um, only mentioning once yeah. and that it was a star, not Satan's yeah. name, right. la, la, la. Um, and an angel actually falling, taking a third, la, la, la. Right, right, so, right. yeah, we, we disputed all of them. So I'm, <laughs> I'm racking my brain, you know, over the course of the last week. And my thoughts lead me to, well, where did Satan come from? Obviously, um, yeah. this thought of the enemy, the devil, um, so my thoughts take me to 
take me to uh, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. If, if we as humanity have multiple choice, being that we are, uh, um, we have free will. Yeah. So for every decision that we encounter, there's multiple choice. If, if multiple choice is A through F, and if, let's say, D being multiple choice is the wrong choice, if D is the evil choice, then is that evil choice where we are? Is that evil choice what we have decided to do? Um, and, and I don't give D a name, but let's say Peter says to Jesus, and then Jesus replies to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. It was that, was that Peter choosing D? So when he chose D, it wasn't him being Satan, but he right. chose that yeah. option. Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, he was tempted by D, even though he didn't choose D, he right. was still tempted by D. Uh, Adam being in the garden, he was tempted. He had all the multiple choice that he could do right. in the garden, yet he's tempted and yeah. he went with D. He went with the option of D. So here we are throwing a figment of I don't know. A I'm confused who this D person is. I'm doing. You know. uh, well, <laughs> D being the devil. I know. <laughs> so, sorry, it could yeah. be F. That was I a good like one. F either. S Satan. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. B Beelzebub. So I mean, yeah. my my thoughts are in my head, being this concept. Yeah. And uh, well, uh, yeah. No, that that's a great question. And I'm not going to get too far into this. I'll let. I'd let Pastor Andrew get into all this because I know him and I have discussed some of it. Uh, a, a lot of it is this. First of all, the serpent in the garden wasn't the devil. Uh, he's never called the devil, just called the serpent. Um, actually, the Hebrew idea of Satan or the devil uh, actually didn't even come about until about, about Chronicles. You know, I mean, actually, there really wasn't much, much discussion. They, they actually believed that God did everything. God took, God gave away, God was... God was the author of good. He was the author of evil. And things began to change. That's why you got, you got, like in, you got in Samuel where it says that God told David the number Israel. But then in Chronicles, the writer of Chronicles, 400 years later, uh, 400 years later, he is chronicling the exact same story about David numbering Israel. And he says Satan told David the number Israel. And so it's very confusing. So was it God or was it Satan? Well, that really isn't a confusing thing. Over a 400-year period, their idea of evil started to get shifted, not as much to God doing everything, but if it was evil, it was, it was an accuser. It was a tempter. It was, matter of fact, in the Old Testament, it's always called the Satan. And, you know, like, like Peter wasn't literally the devil at that moment. What he was saying is you're being adversarial. A lot of times when you see the word devil, it's not always talking about the devil. Like, I personally believe Matthew 25 when it says that hell, Gehenna there, I mean, Gehenna, that's a valley over in Jerusalem. If Gehenna was made for the devil and his angels, so God has a valley over in Jerusalem. He's going to throw the devil and demons someday. I mean, they just don't even make any sense. But when you understand that Gehenna was where all of the high priest and all of the priesthood, that the main accuser, the main devil, if you may, against the kingdom of God was the law and all of the law system and all of its messengers, which was the priesthood, they all got thrown into Gehenna by the Romans and set on fire in 70 AD. All right, Now that makes a whole lot more sense than it's talking about a literal devil 
all right, uh, and, and literal messengers, if you may, because it was the messengers of the, of, of the accuser. And the main accuser was the law. That's why you get to 1 John, and 1 John starts talking about sons of God, but it talks about sons of the devil. Now, that one confused me for years until I understood that every time you see the word devil, it's not talking about necessarily the entity of the devil, simply because if it is, then the devil has a reproductive organ. And we know he's not a creator, he's a perverter, all right? And, and, and this isn't poltergeist, you know? I mean, you know, it, it, that's just not how all this works. And, 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 and you know, he, he, the devil doesn't have literal seed because if he does, then that means we have to be suspicious of which one of you, which one of you, which one of you carry the DNA of God and which one of you carry the DNA of the devil? That's why, that's why, that's why Hitler could say, oh, the Jews, they're the sons of the devil. Uh, the, that's why the KKK could say black people, they're the sons of the devil. Huh? Because if you can't see every human in the image and likeness of God and see the see that we are all God's offspring, then you're gonna begin to you're gonna begin to label people, you're gonna set them aside. And that's where, man, there's a whole theology. Matter of fact, do you know that ancient Hebrew mysticism actually taught that the devil was was ego? Uh, and so there's just, just know that there's a lot more out there than just the simple stuff we've been taught. And there's no scripture that tells us actually where the devil and demons literally came from. Uh, when it comes to the Genesis, we just don't know. It, it's just, it's not there. It's not recorded. Now, there's extra biblical stuff that's been written down, but, but we just don't know. But it's a great question. And it takes us on a road of, you know, thinking and asking questions. And that's healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. All we got to know is he's defeated. Whatever he or it is, it was defeated at the cross and the good news. I love one of my spiritual fathers, Kelly Varner, he used to say this all the time. He said, the devil's not your biggest problem. It's what you think about the devil. You know, so if you think he's all powerful, then he will be to you. That's why Paul said, give no place. All right? We're not ignorant of the devil's devices. Noamata is the Greek word, which is mind games. All it is is mind games in the first place. So anyway, let me, let me bless you. Father, I, I thank you. I thank you for truth that transforms us. I thank you that, that truth uh, is constantly changing us and taking us from glory to glory by the faith of Jesus Christ. I thank you for that change. Lord, I ask that as your people, as your sons and daughters are on this journey of life, that they constantly just be open. Uh, they be open to learn, to grow, to mature, and not, not to be stuck and dogmatic uh, in any area, but just open, open to learn. And I thank you for that. I ask that you seal the seed in every heart. In Jesus' name. For more information about Faith City Church, please go to faithcity.tv. As always, we pray that you would grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.